You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Ari Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Rebecca Panofka. Uh, Rebecca, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Rebecca Panofka. I'm a um, writer and a co-editor and co-founder of a new magazine called The Drift. Uh, thanks so much for coming on today. So we're going to be talking about an essay that you published in Harper's uh, recently. And uh, the headline is uh, Men in Dark Times, How Hannah Arendt's Fans Misread the Post-Truth Presidency. Uh, the link would be below. I thought it was really interesting. So um, thanks for coming on to talk about it. So um, why why did you decide to write this piece? What was the origin of it? The origin was uh, I was... Uh, happened to be in a grad seminar on Hannah Arendt uh, during the 2016 election. Um, and the perfect place, the perfect place, the day after, well, yeah, <laughs> or not the day after the 2016 election, I you know literally had to get up and read a few chapters from the origins of totalitarianism, which I did not do um, kind of stumbled pretty groggy to my seminar didn't really want to be there and definitely resented it when um, my when, when the leader of our seminar said, we don't want to be presentist. So we're not going to relate anything here to whatever just happened yesterday. We're in a seminar. This is a closed space. This is sort of a, a place for talking about the text. And having not read the text at that point, I was very frustrated by that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then when I did read it, when I did go to read the origins of totalitarianism afterwards, um, I expected it would have something to do with the moment. Um, this was sort of a week when everyone was talking about resistance. You know, David Remnick was writing in the New Yorker about the need to resist. Um, everyone was talking about Trump as though this sort of state of exception had occurred. Um, and yeah, I, I sort of read the text hoping it would be helpful. And it was not. I, I would you kind of get it get to a line where you're like, okay, maybe that's a little bit similar. And you'd read on for a few more sentences and the connection would totally fall apart. Mm-hmm. So then over the next four years, I sort of watched as every liberal commentator seemed to come to the opposite conclusion. Um, everyone, you know, she was just quoted absolutely everywhere. You know, every major publication treated her like this sort of prophet. Mm-hmm. Um, and treated her words like they were sort of gospel truth. So you'd have these sort of cherry-picked quotes that would essentially be in service of making pretty basic liberal points. Like, oh, you know, it's bad that we have a president who lies to us all the time. <laughs> Which you don't really need Hannah Arendt's help to say. Right. Um, and it started to it started to annoy me because... Uh, what I realized over the course of the of the administration is not just that they're misreading Hannah Arendt, which, from my perspective, who cares? People misread philosophers all the time, um, and sometimes that's productive. Um, but actually, that it was letting people misread Trump and misread the current situation, make it more complicated than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to write a piece about it, and that's the origin. Okay, so so. You know, so a deep, you know, deep with at the very beginning of the, you know, formal Trump era, the 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 uh, colonel was planted for this. Uh, so <laughs> years in the making, and and so, um, you know, maybe could, would it be possible just to give a, a brief capsule of who Hannah Arendt is for someone probably who maybe has heard the name but doesn't know exactly who she is? And I should say, I've the only work of hers I've read is Eichmann in Jerusalem, and I read it um, almost literally twenty years ago in my freshman uh, political science uh, philosophy class. So um, I, I'm not versed in uh, her, her work uh, basically at all. Um, but I do remember Eichmann and Jerusalem pretty strongly. And um, yeah, so who, who, who is she? What is, why does she matter? <laughs> um, sure. So she was a German Jewish philosopher. She was studying with Martin Heidegger uh, and had an affair with him as well. And um World War II happens, Hitler comes to power, uh, she flees Germany and comes to the U.S. Heidegger becomes, at the same time, a, you know, a Nazi. Um, and, and and Heidegger, for those who don't know, is, is sort of this kind of giant of German philosophy. And um, Hannah Arendt comes over to the U.S. 
uh, she becomes part of this New York intellectual scene. She writes for all, all the kind of the magazines and kind of knows all of these big mid-century names. She sort of helps to introduce European modernism in a certain way. Uh, not, that's not really what she's known for, but she did it. Um, and she writes a few really big works of theory uh, or philosophy as she writes. The origins of totalitarianism is is one of the things she's most famous for. It's essentially an attempt to account for the rise of Hitler. Um, and she wants, she accounts for the rise of Hitler by tracing the quote unquote subterranean trends. Uh, essentially what's going on under the surface of German society for the sort of hundred years preceding Hitler's rise. Uh, so she talks about anti-Semitism not just in, not just actually in Germany. She talks all through Europe, talks about anti-Semitism. She talks about imperialism um, and sort of the, the imperial project and how these things build the intellectual mood for something like Nazism to appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, in, so that's the, you know, the first two chapters of, or two, two excuse me, sections of this book are um, about anti-Semitism and then imperialism. And then only in the third part does she talk about totalitarianism. And because it was trendy at the time, she uh, tried to, or not trendy, it was sort of, there was an appetite for, in the beginning of the Cold War, to knit together what had happened in Germany and what was happening in Russia. And so she brings in the Soviet Union only really in part three and tries to make this work account for both places where really it's mostly about Germany. Um, so this was a masterwork. This is kind of a huge book, uh, was received, you know, very well. She became very famous in the U.S. Um, and then went on to produce a lot more, um, works of philosophy that are a little, a bit denser. Mm-hmm. And she also wrote for magazines like The New Yorker, which is where she wrote Eichmann in Jerusalem. Um, Eichmann in Jerusalem caused a huge scandal at the time because she, um, she was, she was, the New Yorker sent her to Israel to cover the trial of Eichmann, uh, who'd been extradited there or captured and sent there. Um, and she thought it was a, a show trial. She thought it was, the whole thing was BS, uh, and was sort of appalled to see this, you know, travesty of justice. Not that she sided with Eichmann, um, but she didn't think anyone was really trying to figure out what had happened. So she decided she would try to figure out actually what this phenomenon was. Um, and yeah, and she comes up with this concept of the banality of evil. Uh, the idea being that, you know, evil is not done by people who are sort of, who seem to us totally monstrous. Evil is conducted by people who are, um, not looking at the full picture, neglecting to judge whether they're doing something right or wrong whether the systems they're helping to further are good or bad. Mm-hmm. So Eichmann designed a lot of the final solution. He's one of the kind of architects behind this, and he's just sort of like a bureaucrat. He's just sort of figuring out the best way to transport Jews. And she's sort of like, oh, this guy's not actually thinking about whether it was right or wrong. He's thinking, like, what's the best way to transport people to this place? Right. So he, he was sort of in charge of, like, the rail aspect of um, <laughs> transporting you know, Jews to concentration camps. So, um, and yeah, and, and, and yeah, I mean, banality of evil is maybe her most famous, uh, coinage. Uh, and certainly people probably who don't know who she is, um, have heard that term. Um, yeah. So that, okay. But keep going. Um, because the yeah. reaction to Eichmann like spurred further work of hers. Totally explosive reaction. Uh, everyone or not everyone Jews in the U S uh, reacted really badly to Eichmann um, to the point where, you know, my, my Jewish grandfather was still upset that I was writing about Hannah Arendt. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but um, not upset, but he, that's, this was his like, main reaction. Um, I um, he, essentially, she had a few lines in there uh, that, I blamed blamed certain Jewish leaders for not doing more, um, not fighting against the for for collaborating uh, 
to with the Nazis. Um, and the reaction doesn't seem to me to be so much to what she said in the text, but just to the fact that she wasn't sort of towing a party line. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what she felt at the time, too. So there were all of these rebuttals. There were kind of book-length rebuttals to what she had written, kind of totally trying to take apart every fact. Uh, and, and, and there were some errors, uh, but she felt that she was a truth teller under siege by people who wanted to promote an official image. And yeah, I get into some of that in the article as well. Yeah. So the, um, and, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but there's, there has been like more contemporary critiques of Eichmann in Jerusalem saying that like, she basically, that she did get some of the stuff wrong related to how involved Eichmann actually was in like the actual extermination of Jews, how much of a committed ideological Nazi he was. Maybe these are things, documents that weren't available at the time, but so I think the, the banality of evil is that, that phrase, like maybe some people think it doesn't apply to, um, like he's just flat, <laughs> this guy's just flat out evil, even though he's just a bland looking, you know, bald man with glasses. Like he actually, like he knew what he was doing and he was committed to the extermination of, you know, European Jewry as, as the Nazi party was. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of factual problems in Hannah Arendt's writing which is sort of one of the funny reasons that she became this like patron saint of fact checking over the past four years. Yeah. And, and you, you, you start the um, piece by no- noting that she hated being fact checked by the New Yorker. I think maybe that's not super unusual. I think they're, they're renowned for their very close, you know, uh, proofreading and fact checking, but she thought yeah. this was sort of, into- she was not happy with how closely they were, um, you know, picking apart what she wrote. Yeah, and I, you know, I was pretty annoyed to be fact-checked on this piece too. So, <laughs> yeah, okay, it's well common. You know, many writers don't like, um, you know, so yeah, like line by line and, and seeing what's what. But um, yeah, so so yeah, so it, I, I guess it's, it's still contested. You know, these things that she was writing about. It was like sixty-two around. Is that when the Eichmann trial was? Um, oh, I don't have a date. In- it's definitely in the sixties. Yeah, yeah, so there's a whole different conversation just about about that um and i mean there's there was a movie recently about about the like how they the israelis it wasn't it wasn't extradition it was like they kidnapped him he was in argentina yeah. right and and um they yeah like like figured out who he was and confer- confirmed his identity and then like grabbed him and flew him to israel and so there's you know, all these questions about like as one of the themes that i remember from the from the book was you know what right do, does israel have to be the prosecutor of this individual when like Israel didn't exist when his crimes were committed and, you know, and they just plucked him off the street or whatever and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of uh, stuff in there that people are, people still are arguing about. Um, okay. So, so one of the, um, so one of the quotes that you pull out, and this is one of the ones that circulated a lot during the past four years. Uh, this is, uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, the ideal subject of t- totalitarian rule is not convinced is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, i.e. the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, i.e. the standards of thought, no longer exist. Um, and so a lot of people thought that that uh, told us something about you know life in 2018 in Donald Trump's America. Um, uh, do you, uh, yes or no? What do you what do you think? Yeah, I think it's easy to read that and say, okay, the ideal subject for totalitarian rule is somebody who doesn't know how to tell the truth between truth and fiction, and that this relates to people who are unable to tell, like, fake news on Facebook from real news on the New York Times website or something. Um, But it's not really what she kind of, I mean, if you actually read that, even that sentence kind of closely, what she's saying is the ideal subject for totalitarian rule is not somebody who, like Heidegger, her mentor, was a convinced Nazi, a guy who actually believed in the sort of philosophy of Nazism, so far as you could call it one, right? Um, not someone who, who believes, who has faith in the ideas and can therefore question them and argue and debate about the implementation and whatever, um, but someone who is willing to just believe whatever the leader says. Um, and I guess to a certain extent, you had people who were willing to believe what Trump said. But if you actually get into what she means, 
and what she's talking about with ideology, the connection sort of falls apart as I and sort of, I go through this in, in a lot of detail in the piece. Um, but essentially what she's talking about with ideology is um, a, le- a leader who, maybe I should back up in a totalitarian regime, the leader takes an ideology and basically creates a fictional world based on that ideology, um, creates a fictional world. And then everyone in the regime, everyone, all the subjects of, of the totalitarian rule have to play along with the rules of this fictional world. And so does the leader. Everyone has to just pretend, has to play a game of pretend altogether. Um, and there can be absolutely no contradiction. There's nobody inside that's contradicting it. And this is enforced by internal terror and outward aggression. Um, and everyone is just, is just playing along. And that, um, we can kind of clearly see that that was not the situation we had here in the United States. We, there were always dissenting voices. Trump never had a kind of monolithic narrative. Uh, and he didn't really have an ideology that he was using to create a kind of world of total consistency. What she talks about is, yeah, this fictional world has to be totally internally consistent, uh, which is sort of where totalitarian regimes run into trouble because total consistency is impossible in the actual world. Facts change. The cracks appear in the narrative. Um, and as cracks appear in this facade, the thing that she really worries about, as cracks appear, these ideal subjects um, start to see that there's something not quite right start to see that the official story is a little bit wrong. Um, And instead of just doubting the official story, because they've so accepted it and so sort of trusted the people who've been telling them this official story, this fictional world, they lose their bearings completely and they're unable to tell truth from falsehood. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is, we we can kind of very clearly say this is not what happened. It's not like, Trump had this lying world of fictional, you know, this kind of fictional world that was totally internally consistent and that as facts on the ground changed, people lost their faith and then didn't know what to believe. Actually, Trump is is preying on the end result of that process already. He's capitalizing on the fact that there's already this big population of people um, in the U.S. who didn't trust the official organs of power, uh, of truth, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, didn't trust the media, the line, you know, didn't trust politicians. And so he's sort of taking advantage of this, of this situation that preceded him. Um, that may have all been very garbled, but. Um, I, I, okay. I, I, yes. I don't think it was garbled. I think that made sense. And, uh, and part of what you talk about towards the end of the piece is the um, George W. Bush administration, the Iraq war, and whether that is a more, appropriate um sort of not parallel but like uh, our uh, analysis perhaps applies to that's you know the situation like 2002 2003 more than trump um and so yeah so i mean so like so hitler you know his so like the big lie and that's i i don't know if you use that term in the essay but that's okay that's a term that has returned now in sort of a you know way that i don't think makes sense but so you know hitler said that like, you know, the Jewish, like Jewish control had, um, you know, caused like the, the slaughter of World War One, And so you know, I'm, I'm probably not uh, getting the details of what Hitler's argument was, but basically Jews control everything. And so like, they're going to force us into this war. And if we, you know, we have to do it, then we have to do it. And then, so that wasn't true. Um, but that was the a sensible you know, reason for, um, you know, stripping Jews of their possessions and uh, their citizenship and leading to the Holocaust. Um, and so there's no, um, there's no big lie in, you know, there's nothing comparable to that in the Trump presidency, at least up till November 6th, um, 2020. And after November 6th, 2020, uh, there's, you know, okay. So before, so in the before period, you, you know, like, Politicians lie all the time. Uh, this is not shocking. And they lie about all sorts of things. Trump's lies, um, were sort of different and you characterize them as, uh, boardroom bullshit, which I think is, that's a good term. And I, I mean, so he, you know, he would lie when it didn't matter. Um, and 
it seemed like the like he sort of lied for fun and he didn't have an overarching ideological project the way that Adolf Hitler did. Um, the only thing he cared about was making himself look good and like get attention on television stuff in, in my opinion. But um, so, and you know, something that I remember reading a couple of years ago is that, you know, he's uh, Trump has been deposed a couple of times under oath. And one time um, he, you know, it basically the, a lawyer was pinning him down about numbers. He had said publicly about, income or some, or, you know, on mm-hmm. pro- various real estate projects. And he had like inflated the numbers, but only like 30% or so, you know, he wasn't. So back then, this is probably like the eighties or nineties. He wasn't like, you know, Trump Plaza hotel is the greatest thing on earth. He was like, you know, we didn't make, we made like 35 million instead of 20 million. Yeah. Um, so th- yeah, so that's, these are not the sorts of lies comparable to, you know, Jews controlling world history and uh, manipulating, uh, you know, European civilization, so we have to wipe them out. This is, yeah, boardroom bullshit is a good way to put it. Um, and yeah, so, you know, they're, they're like Trump equals fascism has been a running debate since, you know, uh, 2016. And it doesn't, it never made sense to me because like fascism is an actual like belief system or ideology of some sort, whereas Trump his ideology is just, I am great. And really he had no real political project beyond that. And then, but then once it was clear he lost the election, well, I don't know. Well, what do you think of, does that make sense to you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the, the, like the, the, the thesis of the piece in a way I, I kind of have a paragraph um, midway through that sort of, uh, characterizes Trump's lies as bordering bullshit. And so it's kind of, they, um, his lies weren't trying to create a fictional world so much as just inflating the numbers. Um, all of his, you know, how many uh, people came to his inauguration, um, which was the origin of the term alternative facts. Uh, and he, or, you know, how much money he was worth. It was all just kind of boosting the numbers. It was always about saving face. It was never, it never actually progressed to totalitarian world building in any way. Um, yeah. But then January 6th, in a way, it's the same type of lie. It's not more people came to my inauguration than actually did. It's it's more people voted for me than actually did. Um, it's the same type of lie, and yet it has this different result. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, people, the term big lie started being applied to Trump around then. Um, And it comes from this New York Times Magazine cover story by uh, Timothy Snyder. um, Who's a historian, a scientist who wrote uh, like on to tell, he wrote this little like booklet, almost book that it was a super bestseller that was like prevent the rise of fascism or something. And you could buy it. And then also quotes Hannah Arendt. Right. Yeah. You could like buy it for like $12.99 and like put it in like a stocking stuffer kind of thing. But he was sort of an alarmist the whole time um, about Trump. And so I guess it's not a shock that he you know, was uh, immediately left to the Hitler uh, parallel. But the thing is, okay, so on the one hand, I, I objected very early on. I, I think I tweeted something like, you know, this is not the big lie. Like the big lie being Jews control world history and need to eliminate them. Like this is, this is like sort of a small to medium lie. Like we won the election. You, no, you didn't. Like that is not we don't need a capacious like theory of history or like, we don't need to like wipe anyone out. Um, you know, this is not, yeah. this is just a, like a sort of a strict falsehood that is provable. Um, and well, it's, it's just really one guy's, you know, um, personal, yeah. Saving face and that he's the best. And so he could never possibly lose. So it's not at least, at least early on, it's like, this is not, this is, yeah, this is just a lie. Standard lie. Politicians lie all the time. It's just Trump is more shameless. And so, you know. And Trump never says, never takes it back, right? He never will apologize for anything. Never right, because he's right about everything, no matter what, and et cetera. Yeah, so in a way, this was just sort of his MO. Of course I won the election, and I'll never deny it. Same as, of course, more people came to my inauguration, and I'll never yeah. deny that. Yeah, nothing, was ever, think- nothing is ever his fault. Um, he was always uh, very poorly treated. Um, treated, he was treated very unfairly. I've joked before that should be his on his tombstone. They treated me very unfairly. Um, yeah. And so he's both the eternal victor and the eternal victim. I mean, the victim part 
perhaps has some parallels to, you know, fascism, fascism's rise, but where it's like, you know, they stab me in the back, uh, except in this case, it's uh, Mike Pence stabbing in the back instead of the Jews stabbing uh, oh, okay. the German negotiators in the back in World War One. But it's always, it's always, with Trump, it's always stupider, um, more absurd, more over like sort of grotesque and just dumber all around than you know, what happened, <laughs> far, more farcical than what happened in world history before, before Trump. Yeah. And I mean, January 6th, I think is, was, scary because it revealed the fact that these people that there was this population this group that was living in a kind of dream world that thought it would do anything to like walk into the capital and hang out for a while and make a mess and scare everybody um but there was no there was no plan for an uh, for an actual coup if you wanted to organize a coup if trump had wanted to go and, and be some sort of totalitarian he probably, you know, he could have spent the entirety of his administration laying the groundwork, making nice with all of the. He's far general- too lazy and stupid to successfully, or even try something like that. I mean, he like during the period between November sixth and January or whatever the election day, January sixth, like he was golfing, you know, once a week or something. Like this was not like pouring over the um, the maps and so forth, trying to figure out like how we can uh, seize seize the you know regional capitals. He doesn't want power. Is the like he doesn't oh, yeah, ultimately. Exactly. He he's wants not attention. Yeah. Okay. Not, I think we're on the same page about that. Yeah. Yeah. He wants people to think he won the election. He doesn't actually want to have to organize a coup. He doesn't want to be known as someone who had to organize a coup. Yeah. I mean, but also organize a coup. That's a lot of work. I mean, you got to like, yeah. like the military has to be on your side. You know, a lot of organization, um, you know, waking up. I, I say it's not so much work as strategy. He shoots from the hip. And, and his lies are also, I mean, this is why the kind of Arendt thing is, is a total mischaracter allows for a total mischaracterization of his lies because he's not he's not planning out what lies would be strategic to tell to serve the ultimate aim he's just lying yeah he's just saying whatever up as they go along as he goes in along. the moment whatever he needs to to get people to pay attention to him and, the, and you know there's this thing that he said at some point that got repeated often which was like um he realized early on when he was doing his rallies that he could look at the cameras and see the red dots for when that meant he was streaming live and so he could tell when when the red dots turned off that means the cable news networks were not carrying it live and so he would say something crazy and then they would like break in again and be like oh trump says that you know you know uh hillary clinton ate an elephant and then they're like that's you know and then so then cnn yeah. covers that again so i mean his talent is one of his talents is really for grabbing attention and manipulating the media in this very stupid way um but but yeah so it was never like channel six could never succeed in any sort of traditional way that a coup could um, because, you know, the military wasn't like, you have to have the military for a coup to work because the military can just step in and take power. Um, and also it was just so disorganized there. Like some people had some sort of plan, but it wasn't a plan that would result in Trump staying in power. Um, it's possible that their plan could have resulted in like um, senators or congressmen being killed or, or something or kidnapped but all sorts of yeah yeah but it, it, yeah, it wasn't like bad. a an actual threat to like whatever happened on that day it could have been 10 times worse i think maybe if they had blown up the entire building or something but um i mean i remember when it was happening i was thinking they're gonna start setting fires inside the building yeah. and then that's gonna be really bad but that didn't happen because i i mean like they didn't want to do that or just like it wasn't um yeah, so many people were just there sort of taking selfies and hanging out and um, live streaming and, and so forth. So it was like, it's this very postmodern farcical event, in my opinion, but like still still a serious thing. But then, okay, so I'm on board with you, I think largely through the for your thesis and maybe even after January 6th. But then things have been changing over the past couple of months because the, the lie is getting bigger, it, it seems to me, because more and more people have to pretend if you're a GOP like official, you know probably, unless you are like nuts, that he did like there wasn't a massive fraud. Um, no states are going to be overturned. Uh, he's not yeah. going to be appointed. Like you know, the my pillow guy thinks that like on some day Trump is going to like it's going to either become president once again or it's going to be revealed he was president the whole time. So if you are not a crazy person, you understand that that isn't true and that these are all lies. But you have to. Um, pretend because they're all scared of Trump turning against them. And I mean, he can't send an angry tweet anymore, but he can 
um, say like, you know, Liz Cheney, um, you know, you, uh, you turned on me and I, I hate you. And so she loses her positions of power within the party. And so they all have to, like the entire GOP basically at this point is committed to keeping this false narrative going, um, even though they, 98% of them know that this is false. And it's all to flatter the um, absurd, uh, you know, thoughts of this demented sociopath who was president for four years. Um, I mean, maybe I, say, I overstate that a little bit, but I think that's basically true. What do you, are things, have things of the past couple months, you know, changed any of your thoughts about this? I don't know. Um, I think, you know, we have no idea what's going to happen. I don't think we can really use our kind of analysis of Trump's lies to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, it could be dangerous. It always could, like, it, the situation could get very dangerous. If Trump were younger, I would be more scared about it. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, I mean, the I, the best thing for everyone would be if he just croaks and then, like, his cursed existence on this planet is over <laughs> and, you know, the and then... His, it's not like Donald Jr. can can pick up the torch because he's just a, a dummy. So, and it doesn't seem like there's anyone who's well positioned as a successor. I agree with that. Yeah, um, it very much is around Donald Trump. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a sort of cult of personality, but much more pathetic. And yeah, and so there's a lot of people who are talking now about like Trumpism without Trump and who could possibly lead this movement. You know, um, could it be Ivanka? Could it be uh, J.D. Vance or something? But there is no yeah. Trumpism without Trump. There's just ism. And then it's, but there is yeah. no Trump policy. It's just ego. Like, it's not ideology. Yeah, it's just he's the best. And so once he's dead, which will happen at some point, um, you know, <laughs> inshallah, then like the whole, there's nothing left. And so maybe the GOP becomes more um, immigration restrictionist and more sort of xenophobic towards, you know, people crossing the border to work or something. But the essential like Trump charismatic, Pookiness, like, is not going to be replicated by anyone else, I don't think. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think <laughs> okay. that's about right. I'm not sure. I'm not, um, when, not to, not to use Hannah Arendt as, um, gospel at all, but, um, the note I end on in the piece and, and one of her big points is that we shouldn't, she, she's very skeptical about predictions. Um, right. and especially about using what's happened in the past to, try to predict the future. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm always a little wary about predictions myself. Maybe not, not because Hannah Arendt tells me to be, but, um, it did seem like a, like a good way to end the piece. Um, right. I, I don't know if it's going to happen next or. Yeah, next. I don't, I don't either. I, I'm almost, well, I mean, I, it's, you know, Hannah Arendt maybe wouldn't have been suited for the Twitter era where if you state something definitively, then that's a good way to get retweets and saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen. No one, going to retweet that um mm -hmm. probably but the uh i'm pretty i just be pretty confident that he's not even going to run in 2024 he, he he'd much rather play this sort of kingmaker role even though he's not doing a very good job of that. i just saw that yesterday there was a special election and the candidate he endorsed in some texas race uh, the person died or something um uh lost so he, he can't even command a texas primary election at this point so so I, his power is i think a lot a lot of it is sort of illusory so he, he really is sort of a, yeah. a paper tiger right now um yeah so one thing I, I, I was thinking about um, is going back to the banality of evil sure. is that, you know, Trump is not, whatever he is, he is not a banal person. No. Um, and a lot of the people, you know, there were some people who were sort of bland bureaucrats who were carrying out bad things that Trump did, like at the border um, and, you know, separating uh, uh, migrant children from their parents, that kind of thing. But also a lot of the, like, it was sort of like the grotesquerie of evil or something or grotesquerie of Trumpism. Like you had all these mm -hmm. strange people like Sebastian Gorka and Omarosa and Trump himself who cakes himself in orange makeup. And, yeah. you know, like this is not, yeah. So this is not some boring guy. This is like a freak show. <laughs> and so obviously like no one really saw Trump coming, but, and whether he's evil or not is, I, I is, I don't know um, how to categorize that, but, yeah, it was, it was, you know, hookiness, craziness, stupidity, not just bland, you know, <laughs> the bland bureaucrat sending, sending the trains to the concentration camp. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Hitler wasn't really banal either. Excuse me. Right. Um, I don't, 
I don't think finality of evil can be really a catch-all term. Um, I think it, if you sort of extend it a bit and, and maybe forget about the term evil because evil is a complicated thing, but um, one of the things we should look to in American government is, is sort of the continuity between what Trump was doing at the border and what Obama was doing at the border mm-hmm. and what various bureaucrats have been doing at the border or in, in lots of, you know, lots of parts of the country um, for many years. Uh, I think that's more the kind of banality of evil than Trump saying a outlandish thing. Um, yeah. There's in a way sort of the most outlandish characters in the Trump administration were pretty harmless. Like Omarosa. So I don't think she did anything evil. Did she? I'm not sure. Um, doubt well, it. I mean, she, it, it, in fact, she's probably in the upper, like, you know, 20% in terms of like how bad the various people <laughs> were. I mean, so the, the person who comes to mind of, of sort of the banality of evil, it would be Stephen Miller, who was yeah. also this sort of bald guy wearing a suit. Um, I guess, he, you know, he looks somewhat creepy and vampiric, but you know, not, not a sort of over the top guy. And he was, you know, Miller was sort of the only person mm-hmm. at that level in the White House who wasn't totally incompetent and a moron. And so he was able to effectuate his policy in terms of immigration very effectively. And, yeah. um, but yeah, he wasn't, you know, he became, I mean, like everyone knew who he was. So it, was, it wasn't sort of just like the anonymous bureaucrat sort of thing, but yeah, he's somewhere, I don't know, he's somewhere in between and certainly um, seems like a but I don't think person. The banality of evil needs to be an anon. like, I don't think the banal figure needs to be anonymous. Okay. Um, Eichmann wasn't, right? I mean, I guess not. I mean, he, you know, was he at the Wansi conference or whatever? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so he was up there. I don't know, yeah. Can, he, was, can, he was in the higher, pretty yeah, high. Yeah, he, he wasn't your Goering or your Goebbels or whatever, but he was, I guess, the next level down. Um but yeah, uh, but yeah, sort of, yeah, the blandness, I don't know. All I mean, the figures Trump, I mean, Trump tended to replace colorful figures with bland ones because the bland ones were actually better for him. Steve Bannon didn't last very long in that administration. Right. Um, he wasn't yeah, benign I, enough. Yeah, over the time, I mean, Trump, he was the only one you couldn't, like, um, you know, he couldn't fire himself. And, and so, like, yeah, he was the overtop and competent one. And these sort of reality TV, TV show, literal figurative <laughs> type characters who he surrounded himself with, yeah, most of them ended up resigning or being fired or something. And then there were some, you know, sort of standard GOP types who replaced him. Like, maybe Bill Barr um, would be, you know, we could look at him, him in sort of this realm. Like, he sure. was, you know, he was attorney general already. This sort of, like, boring... The spectacled Al, you know, Alish figure who yeah. sort of presented himself as just sort of like, well, I'm just doing what needs to be done. And, um, totally. but he was a much more effective attorney general than, um, uh, what's his name? The, um, the, the Alabama senator who pissed Trump off and <laughs> got fired. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a resonant term and people continue to think about it, but it's not easy to apply it. It maybe is a bit easier to apply to sort of something like the Department of Defense or sort of, you know, the American military, right? You've got people who we've ne- whose names we've never heard, who are making a lot of decisions um, overseas or even, you know, the CIA or um, a lot of people who are sort of working their way up this, you know, ladder and uh, quietly furthering their own careers by killing a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, I mean, maybe the... Um, maybe closer. Yeah, maybe the guy, was his name Esper? It's, it's so, he's so boring, I can't even remember his name. The guy who was defense secretary, and then um, he came from, yeah. he was like from Boeing or Raytheon or something. And mm-hmm. he, al- he also sort of seemed like a, a bland sort of white guy. And then, yeah, he was the defense secretary. And uh, because he wasn't attracting attention in the way some of these other characters were you know people were maybe uh, i'm sure he was able to get away with some stuff that um a more bombastic type of person wouldn't have been able to do um and yeah the fact that i can't even remember what his name was is sort of um (laughs) he was uh indicative of you know that he you know if he showed me his picture i probably would recognize um who, who this guy was even though he was like defense secretary for two years um okay so you so you sort of end the piece with talking about Iraq 
And mm-hmm. can, can you talk about why why you decided to talk about that towards the end? Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of get into it by talking about the Pentagon Papers. And um, Hannah Arendt wrote a piece for the New York Review of Books about the Pentagon Papers and how um, she wanted to call all of the guys who had carried out the war in Vietnam problem solvers. She thought that kind of like Eichmann, they were not saying, okay, are we doing are we doing the right thing in Vietnam? Are we even winning any like material gains? They were just like the only, the only goal of the war in Vietnam, she says, is making sure the U S is perceived as the most powerful nation on earth. The image of the U S is the whole goal. Uh, That there is, there is no sort of actual goal to which image making is the proximate goal. Um, And she's very critical of these guys who are sort of, killing lots of people in the name of, or, you know, in the service of an image uh, without really considering the ethics. And mm-hmm. so the Pentagon papers reveal a few things. One is they sort of reveal all of these motives and, and all, all of what's gone on, but then they also reveal, she thinks they're not all that revelatory. And this is something that people dispute. People think she's wrong about this, but regardless, she says um, what they actually reveal is that the press has done a pretty good job because we've known much of what's revealed in these papers all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the U.S., the official story never had the chance to become monolithic, never had the chance to become kind of a totalitarian style image mm-hmm. uh, because the press has always been questioning it. So she has this whole thing. Um, and then we get to the Iraq war and the contrast between Iraq and Vietnam is largely that the press did not serve that function did not make sure, uh, did not question what the Bush administration was saying, uh, often sort of just repeated it. Uh, even people on the pretty far left press uh, were sort of gullible and allowed that image to become monolithic so that when, after the fact, um, there were more questions and it was revealed that the American government had been lying and there are all these lies that were used to justify the Iraq war, um, it was easy for people following Aaron's logic. It was easy to lose faith in the official story. It was easy to lose faith in both the media who failed to do their job and in the government, which lied to us. Yeah. Um, so I think I, and I, I didn't mean to kind of pin things too specifically on the Iraq war. It's just kind of a good example of what seems to me to be a pattern in American politics or man media uh, that's been slowly building maybe since the Pentagon Papers in Vietnam, just -hmm. that the government lies to us. And we sort of know the government is lying to us. And we also know that the media is only saying, is only questioning the government part of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that there is to some extent that we have good reason to be skeptical of the official organs of truth telling. The official story. Um, so I, I kind of went off of something that Arendt's former assistant said during the Iraq war, um, calling back to her theories and calling back to what she said about the Pentagon, about Vietnam, um, and thought actually that, that, that is a good explanation maybe for why people are so skeptical now or why people are willing to believe somebody like Trump or don't really care if he's telling them it's tr- the truth or not. Mm-hmm. Um, because they sort of, um, people, people would always say that Trump was, um, saying the quiet part out loud, the quiet part, which means that we already sort of know that politicians are lying to us all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just, he was in a way not lying better than they were or lying more. He was lying badly. Um, Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I sort of wanted to wanted to use the Iraq War to question whether we like post truth was something new. Like, what is new about post truth, or what? Why is this the post truth era if we've been lied to consistently for a long time? Right, and so the you know the period from nine eleven to like a couple months after the Iraq invasion is more comparable to a sort of totalitarian you know, merging of like state and press and all following the same line 
than the Trump era where the press was consistently opposed to everything Trump did. And um, I mean, like Trump did, I mean, you know, Trump talked constantly and sometimes he did say, say things that were true and that no one else could say, at least in the GOP. So one of those things was during some debate, you know, Trump was insulting George W. Bush and Jeb Bush said, well, my brother, he like, he kept us safe. And then Trump said, no, he didn't. 9-11 <laughs> happened. And so that no one else could have done that. And that actually is true. Like uh, George Bush did not keep us safe because 9-11 happened on his watch. So that, so he was able to like, as a, you know, inveterate taboo breaker, he was able to break some of the GOP taboos and that probably attracted some people like some primary voters who were like, wow, this guy does call it like it is because he's not afraid to violate the, you know, sacred, um, you know, go along with the party line on, on this sort of stuff in the mm. way that the rest of, you know, Marco Rubio and, and Ted Cruz would have never said something like that. Um, and so that was part of his appeal. And yeah, I mean, the, there's an argument that if, you know, if the Iraq war had never happened, then there's no way Trump would have been able to, attain power because you know the the GOP was so um discredited and also the like the instability in the Middle East fueled this refugee refugee surge um from people in the Middle East to to Europe and that sort of added to the hysteria around like immigrants coming to murder us and so forth. Um and yeah so I think that that is you could the counterfactual <laughs> you could think about it and ponder whether, you know, um no Iraq war, no, no President Trump ever, but it would have even been considered. Um, yeah. So, so is it sort of are you end are you ending saying sort of like, in some way, the, the what happened during the Bush administration did sort of like prime the populace to be in that like state of unsure uncertainty about truth and falsehood, or at least some part of the populace, and then Trump comes in and takes advantage of that. Or, or maybe. Not. Maybe. No, I mean, I think, I think that's true. I, I think sort of the, the way I thought about structuring the piece was like, well, everyone, everyone is treating Hannah Arendt as, uh, you know, gospel truth. Um, and, and as a perfect reflection of Trump. And so first of all, like she doesn't apply to Trump. She's irrelevant to Trump. And then second of all, even if she is irrelevant to Trump, let's, let's take her as gospel. If she's right about this phenomenon about, truth and lies if we actually think this is this is correct and this is how people in a population in in a in a state um get to the point where they don't they aren't able to recognize the difference between truth and lies and if that is the situation we're in then the person she's blaming for that is not trump but like every presidential administration that preceded him mm-hmm. um and and the bush administration is a good example of that um so it's sort of, it's, it's more kind of a, a rhetorical move, I guess, than like a, a statement of absolute truth. I'm not sure. I think these things are complicated. I think, yeah. um, there are a lot of reasons why people are willing to believe Donald Trump or a lot of things that can account for his popularity, um, that are outside of the Iraq war, um, and outside of, governmental truth telling there's also sort of reality tv there's also celebrity there's also the internet there's kind of all of these other factors and i don't think i don't think i can make um as simple a causal argument there's it's too complicated Mm -hmm. do you do you think there's anything uh in a rent that applies to sort of QAnon and the stream dream world that some number of our fellow americans entered into (laughs) over the past couple years well yeah i mean i think um, yeah, if you want to use, it, it's sort of the same, the same thing, which is that, um, people who have lost their confidence, who, who feel this wobbling feeling that results from believing an official story and then watching cracks develop. I was, I was kind of walking through that earlier in more detail. Um, people like that are susceptible to conspiracies. Um, and, uh, the other thing she says that is that is relevant is um, she blames loneliness, social atomization for this. Mm-hmm. Um, she thinks people, and I'm not sure this is true or not, but she thinks that people who are lonely are susceptible to conspiracies. People who are atomized, people who've sort of lost their place in a community, um, find a home through a conspiracy. 
um, through a movement that gives meaning to their lives. Uh, the modern world, she thinks, is very, there's so much arbitrariness, there's so much randomness, there's um, so, it's so easy to feel out of place. And if you join, if you believe in an ideology or a conspiracy, you, you get a home. Right. Um, you, you like find a community, you find a, um, a simpler and more consistent um, way of looking at the world and your place in it. Um, lonely people want consistency is her sort of insight there. And I think that is true. Yeah, that make that makes sense to me. And, and then, you know, people, once you're sort of halfway into QAnon or some other similar thing, you end up sort of driving away people who are in your real life because you're talking about like Tom Hanks being a pedophile. And then so you get even like lonelier in real life and more deeper into this, you know, network of, of people believing conspiracies and stuff. Um, do you, do you, um, have you ever seen, uh, the fog of war, the documentary about Robert McNamara? Yeah. Um, that, I mean, think about him as sort of a, banal type figure and he was sort of brought in I think he was like the president of Ford Motor Company originally before he was Secretary of Defense and he um he was yeah. sort of like the numbers guy and um you know he and so he was like you know we're bringing it so it was sort of almost, he was like a wonk kind of and he's a, he's, he's exactly who she's talking about in the New York Review yeah. he's like she's she uh, I think his name is in there somewhere um she's talking well, yeah, about I mean, because he was the secretary for you know, Johnson, then it would make sense that uh, the Pentagon Papers analysis would talk about him. But um, yeah, no, I just couldn't remember if, if she calls him a problem solver directly. I think okay. she does. Yeah. Um, but he, like, he's the prototype of a problem solver. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like he like, like, yeah, he doesn't have his own ideology. He just like, look, you running the numbers and like, we'll figure out what the best thing is. And like, so that meant like, you know, more and more bombs being dropped uh, in Vietnam and Cambodia and so forth. Um, yeah, and, and then it is interesting to think about Rumsfeld, who also had a documentary made about him by the same filmmaker, um, and who just died a month or so ago, and how he fits in this. But maybe we're moving somewhat beyond the ambit of your essay. Um, is there anything else you want to say um, say about it uh, before we maybe wrap up? Hmm. Um, I don't think I have any. I, I think those are both kind of great examples of what she was talking about. Um, and also great examples of why people don't trust the U.S. government. Right. And, you know, when I was reading the obituaries of Rumsfeld, he, there was a part of his life that I didn't know anything about, which he was like, so he was also defense secretary twice, but after in the Ford administration, then when he left, he like entered corporate life and was like a hugely successful CEO and became super rich, like running like pharmaceutical companies or something. And it was sort of that like, yeah, he could like look at the problem and, and, and solve it by looking at the numbers and, and so forth. And then he like went back into, you know, <laughs> went back into uh, government service and then, you know, uh, helped cause this giant catastrophe <laughs> for humanity, yeah. uh, the Iraq war. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, both uh, of those documentaries, those are both like Errol Morris documentaries. They're both great. Oh yeah. I said Alice Gibney, but it is, it's Errol Morris. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're, yeah, they're both Errol Morris. It's like the Fog of War and no non, the known unknown or known unknown. Something yeah, like something that. with unknown. Known unknowns, yeah. Known unknowns, yeah. Um, and they're both kind of perfect examples of, I think, what Hannah Arendt would have liked the Israeli government to do with Eichmann. Um, because they, they both sort of, I think what they're both doing is sort of drawing out the, the banality of evil. Um, they're both trying to dissect what makes what makes a person who's essentially interested in logistics and tactics and strategy um, do things that are very evil yeah. um, and have huge humanitarian consequences without really like thinking about what those consequences are, just thinking about the strategy. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So these types are still among us and probably some of them we don't, we've never even heard of are, uh, <laughs> you know, machinating or whatever in uh, the some mid-level uh, position in, in the U.S. government right now. Um, okay, so the piece is in Harper's Men in Dark Times. Um, we'll link to it. Do you want to talk about, just talk a little bit more about The Drift? Um, sure. And plug that or tell us what, what that is. And Oh, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, you should go to thedriftmag.com, which maybe could also be included in the, if there's room for more than one link. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so then we'll include the link to that. 
Um, yeah, we're a quarterly magazine. We launched a year ago and uh, we publish long form cultural political criticism. Um, we, as well as poetry and fiction and more fun stuff. Um, we, if you're enjoying my piece in Harper's, it's kind of a similar, um, similar mentality over at the drift. Uh, we, um, aim to publish new writers who haven't gotten a lot of exposure and who haven't necessarily gotten a chance to publish in big places. Um, so, um, yeah, please read us and please pitch us. We respond to every pitch that we receive. We're like interested in publishing people who have not sort of, um, been absorbed into the, um, media Twitter sphere, uh, where everyone can often can too often seem like they're saying the same thing. Um, the magazine very much came out of our sentence. My, I started it with a friend and then some other friends come on. Um, it came out of our sense that, um, during at the beginning of the Trump administration and then um, during me to uh, a sort of to just repeat myself, a sort of monolithic media narrative was emerging and that even the left media wasn't really dissenting enough mm-hmm. um, and that there was more dissent in podcasts than was available in the sort of intellectual magazines. And we didn't like that. So we thought we'd try something new. And that, yeah, please read us and subscribe. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So how, if people want to pitch, how can they do so? Uh, email us editors at the driftmag.com. It's all available on our website and you can also um, subscribe, which really helps because we're a new small organization and all the money is basically just going to supporting young writers. Um, and they can also donate or they can, we just launched our store last week. So they can also buy, um, cool merch merch they can buy a, a t-shirt with eugene debs's face on it um they can buy, which is a that that's selling out so that if they want to buy it they should buy it soon um and uh they can buy all you know tote bags and hats and please do um we're, yeah we're basically just trying to support young writers and help them um bring new perspectives into the broader conversation mm-hmm um, what, that's interesting that you saw more sort of diversity of opinion or, or, or something in, Sorry. in podcasts than in other things. And then maybe that's related to like the fact that, you know, what's rewarded on social media is or like either going along with what everyone is saying or like totally rejecting what everyone is saying and, you know, making them out to be the morons. And whereas a, I don't know, podcast, both it's harder for a podcast to go viral and like it sort of inherently has a, like conversational, um, dialectical or something. Part I think of that's true. In a podcast, like you have to listen all the way through. You can't sort of screenshot one line or quote one line. You can't skim for the most sensational part and cancel someone on the basis of it. You have to actually listen to an hour to find the spicy thing. Um, <laughs> if you want, and- if you want to cancel someone who's on a podcast, you have to listen to the whole thing. You can't just like do like control F and looking for like a bad word they said or something. Totally. It takes a long time. Um, and part of, I think part of what we were thinking is that, um, pieces in all of the little magazines read differently if you're on Twitter or not. Uh, yeah. which is a problem, right? You're, you're kind of, if you read a, if you read a piece and you're on Twitter, you're able to read between the lines and see all of these things. They're just not accessible to you if you're not part of the discourse online. Um, and we hated that. Uh, we think that's bad. So their pieces read the same either way. Uh, okay. We try. We try to really avoid that. Um, and we uh, we try to um, yeah, we try to make sure we're not only catering to this sort of um, like the, the sort of wave of what gets, um, what gets supported online and sort of, um, we don't want to just gang up on things that everyone thinks are bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we don't want to support the things that everyone thinks are good just because everyone's supporting them. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Well, that, that all sounds admirable to me. So people should uh, check that out. And um, I, I wish you the best in that endeavor. So, um, okay. So if people want to follow, even though we're just talking about how stupid Twitter is and how it is baleful for the discourse, do you want to plug your Twitter account? Um, yeah, the Drift Mag. 
Um, you can, and, what about, yeah. and what if people want to just follow you in particular, where can they do? Oh, that? Um, me in particular. Um, I think my Twitter handle is RM Panofka, but I am not totally sure if that's true. Fake news over here. <laughs> um, I think that's true. Well, uh, yeah, it you, is RM Panofka. Please okay, follow. If you don't even yeah. know your own Twitter handle, then you're either doing something wrong or right, I guess, um, about how the discourse, uh, is you know unfolds in, in usually bad ways uh, you know there are very few panofkas so i think people can find me <laughs> okay uh yeah and link so all the links to these things will be on the plug site um if people want to check them out so uh so thank you for for coming on this is uh interesting conversation yeah thank you so much um, for having me and thanks to our uh, viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time thanks so much